This is the Knowledge Leaders Podcast with Todd Hand. I've known David Moore for four or five years at this point. David, welcome. Thanks, Todd. It's great to be here. David, I wanted to talk with you about what's, what's happening in this country around a labor shortage in some really important industries. You've got a deep background in the healthcare space, and I know that you're out and, and looking for opportunities in that sector. If you just pick up the newspaper and you see all of these dire warnings about labor shortages with mid-skill healthcare workers like pharmacy technicians and certified nursing assistants and medical assistants and even physicians. You've been in this space a long time. You know, what's happening? So, you know, quite a few things are happening and a lot of it is, is happening right in front of us. You know, we have, a, we have an aging population in the, uh, in the U.S. We have a growing population. But we also have this issue of, of people living longer, um, which is a good, you know, that's, that's good for all of us. What it's done is it's put a tremendous amount of pressure on our healthcare system. You combine the fact that we have a population that's living longer and living higher quality of life along with an aging population, and you add into that a lot of policy, and a lot of those policy opportunities are expanding health coverage to more people in our country. Uh, the Affordable Care Act is a great example of that. And Right now, you know, a lot of the national studies are saying that we're short by, you know, around a million nurses across the country and that we're 125,000 physicians short as a country. And when you think about how long it takes to teach a, a doctor to be ready to, you know, go and start seeing patients, it takes about 10 years to train a new physician. So a shortage of doctors and a shortage of nurses, when it takes that amount of time to train them, it, it's a problem that we need to be addressing right now. It sounds kind of crazy to go back to, you know, sort of a high school economics class, but you have a supply and a, and a demand curve, and, um, and, they're, and they're both working, you know, very aggressively right now for anybody that can look at that graph to say, oh, well, here's, you know, here's your issue. You don't have enough doctors. You don't have enough nurses. You don't have enough of those mid-level professionals, whether they're entry-level CNAs or, or mid-level pharmacy techs, and then the problem gets exacerbated in at-risk markets, in rural medicine, you might have one doctor covering, you know, tens of thousands of square miles before you before you get to another another provider, and then you get into these islands. They talk about sort of grocery store or restaurant deserts in urban markets. Well, it's the same in healthcare, where you have you know poor, underserved markets in urban environments where there aren't enough doctors that are serving you know underserved uninsured and, and the poor in our, in our country as well. Okay. So what can be done and who have you seen, because I know you're out looking really closely at the sector, who have you seen that is really making some inroads, some strides at solving this problem? So it's interesting. In addition to private investment in, in higher education, which we've been seeing kind of going in, in cycles for the last 25 to 30 years in this country, You've got a couple of, of new entrants. You have HDA, which is you know primarily a uh, you know a healthcare system that's operating hospitals, with their acquisition of the Galen College of Nursing. You have Kaiser Permanente that's publicly announced that they're going through the accreditation steps to open their own College of Medicine to create more MDs that are uh, that are needed in California. 
But you also couple that with some of the traditional people that have been out in the space for quite some time. You know, what, you know, the group that used to be called DeVry, Ad Talum now, um, has completely remade their organization into, you know, primarily a healthcare education group. You know, their nursing schools, which, which started as a, as a very modest deaconess college of, of nursing in, uh, in the Midwest, you know, about 10 to 12 years ago, has now grown into Chamberlain, which is one of the largest, you know, sort of solution providers to, to the nursing shortage in the U.S., and you couple that with their uh, with their MD schools that they own down in the Caribbean, and they're probably the largest publicly traded education group that's focusing on the healthcare problem in the U.S. And then you have private investment. There's a Canadian private equity company, Altus, that bought the St. Augustine School from Laureate down in Florida, which has PA programs in nursing, and then uh, you know recently bought the uh, Rocky Vista College of Osteopathic Medicine in, in Colorado you know, following a very similar plan to sort of aggregate assets in healthcare training and healthcare education that are focused on those pain points, you know, pun intended, where, you know, we need more doctors, we need more nurses, and we need more those mid to higher level primary care people. Can technology play a role at, at helping the situation? It, it certainly can. You know, this, this concept of the, of the flipped classroom, streaming lectures, you know, there's no question that, that technology is, is sort of, it's less of a push from the education providers to the students and more of a pull from the students from the education providers. You know, today's medical student going to medical school, they don't really want to sit in a, in a large lecture hall with, with 200 people, you know, listening to the sage on stage. They would prefer to have the lecture streamed to show up to discussion groups, um, to kind of have smaller class sizes, but also have, you know, education on demand that they can access at two in the morning if that's when they're up, you know, prepping and, and doing their studying. And so what we're seeing is the accrediting bodies for medicine, for nursing, they're still very much, you know, they, they want to hold on to the, the, the traditional way to, to deliver education. But there's a blending that's happening, but it's happening very slowly. Probably the biggest area of technological advancement and change in healthcare education has been the sophistication and the advancements that have been made in simulation. So creating opportunities for not just physicians, but also nurses in training to do simulations in a lab with a mannequin, you know, a very high fidelity mannequin, obviously, that can blink its eyes and make sounds and and have symptoms, which if you think about it is, is, is a really good way for a, a lot of people to be, to, to be training before they ever see a real live breathing, blinking human being in, the, in, in a clinical setting. But a lot of the accreditation agencies and, and state nursing boards have been much more uh, fast to respond to programs that have higher percentages of clinical simulation in their programs and allow classes and allow schools to come back down out of 100% clinical ex experience. They're, they're allowing a lot of the simulation to substitute for, for some of that. Many of the schools that you mentioned earlier are in the, the for-profit college sector that has been, as we all know, hit really hard in the last six to eight years. But it doesn't seem like the healthcare 
sector has been hit hard. And in fact, you've said that the, the deal volume has increased over the last couple of years. What's going on? Well, there's a, you know, there's a couple of things that are, that are driving that. You know, again, the, the supply-demand dynamic of schools that are producing high-quality, good pass rates, you know, at or above the state averages for the NCLEX scores for nursing, there's just such strong demand for, for those professions that even in a, an economy that has full employment, those types of, of programs in schools um, continue to see full class sizes and aren't having any trouble. You know, typically, you know, a lot of people would look at for-profit higher education and say that it, was, it, was, it ran fairly counter-cyclical. In other words, you know, it would be hard to fill your class sizes when a student could otherwise get a good hourly wage. But when the economy dips, you know, people naturally go back to school because they can't find work. You know, it's, it's been a little bit of, a, of an opposite effect or a uncyclical uh, phenomenon in, in healthcare education, particularly in, in sort of those bachelor's degrees and higher of nursing programs. The, the other thing that's working in favor of traditional for-profit higher ed in healthcare is that class sizes are simply full in, in their competitors. So community colleges and state schools and commuter schools that are offering similar programs with, with nursing in them, they're simply full and their waiting lists are too long for students to want to wait. And so it's creating opportunities for class expansions and campus uh, add-ons in, in the higher education space, particularly in nursing. And I think you know, that's what we've been seeing. You and I both have high schoolers. And it just seems that we're, we're not doing a good enough job communicating and informing the middle school and high school populations of the tremendous opportunity in certain careers. You know, when, when, when I ask my high schoolers, friends, you know, what they want to do, I get a lot of, I don't know. But if they knew that the healthcare industry was yearning and had open jobs and open opportunity and open career paths for them. Uh, you know, you know, maybe they, the wheels would be turning and they, they would be thinking more about going into healthcare. Do you, how do we get the word out to the younger you know, generations that there's tremendous opportunity here? Boy, I'll tell you, you, you hit the nail on the head, Todd. We've done a pretty poor job in, in this is sort of on a national policy level of creating pathways for high school students to get into what, what you and I would have considered sort of vocational tech type, uh, type opportunities when we were in high school. We've pulled a lot of those shop, you know, healthcare, childcare type programs out of our high schools in favor of, you know, college prep and, and, and standardized uh, testing. You know, I think that there's a, there's a huge opportunity and it, and it is happening, but it's happening really in, in small pockets and it's happening in conjunction with, you know, states that, you know, have a, have a really, really high need. In Colorado, where I live, um, there's such a shortage of nursing that the state has now authorized community colleges to start offering bachelor's degrees of nursing. And, and it's being done out of desperation because I can tell you that the, that the state schools that are already offering nursing programs don't want to invite more competition. They don't want to see a community college offering what's typically been their bailiwick, but it, it's really seen as a, as a need to be able to increase that capacity and, and create expansion opportunities to, 
to get those things done. Some counties have progressive, you know, outreach where they're going out to the schools and they're, you know, creating pathways for students to get dual credit so that they can earn college credit while they're in high school and, and get a head start on a, uh, on a nursing degree or an associate degree that will transfer into, you know, to good vocational training. But you're, you're right. We're, we're not doing enough of it. And the need is there and it's, and, it's, and it's staring us straight in the face and we need to do more about it. We'll wrap with this last question and it's around underreported stories that you see out there. Based upon what you read in the press versus what you're seeing on the street, what are some underreported stories from your perspective? So one of the projects that, that we're working on with Medical Impact Company is to create more capacity for, uh, for the physician pipeline. So we're actively working with a couple of partner established universities that have got over 100 years of, of their own unique history. And they are you know, actively working with, with our group to develop two new colleges of medicine on their campuses. One of the, the, the great shortages that we have in this country is funding for medical students after they've graduated medical school. And what I mean by that is to become a doctor, you go through you know, whatever your undergraduate major is, and usually it's health sciences or biology. You apply and take the MCAT, you get into medical school, you take four years of medical school. Well, when you graduate medical school, after you've passed your step one and your step two, then you go on to a residency. And the residency happens after medical school, but you can't become a physician until you've completed a residency, whether it's in psych- you know, uh, psychiatry or in geriatric care or in surgery, anesthesia, primary care, whatever it's going to be. And depending on what the specialization is, you, know, you, go, you go even longer. That's where that 10-year to become a doctor quote came from earlier in our conversation. But the funding for every resident in this country comes from the federal government or it comes from the private, you know, the the private state hospital fund or a private hospital that sets up its own funding for for residencies. And that pool of money that the federal government provides goes to American students that train in the U.S. It goes to American students who train in other countries. And it goes to foreign docs that graduate from foreign medical schools. So said another way, we have a system in this country and we have a need for more physicians, but the funding for the residencies when it's, when it's finally you know, ready for doctors to come in, we're not producing enough doctors in the United States and American students that are going to American medical schools that we are paying we are giving foreign medical school graduates money to come do their residencies in this country. And that seems a little backward to me that we should be, particularly with this administration, um, that seems to have a very pro-America, America first, you know, sort of mantra, that there haven't been a change to the way that we've been funding graduate medical education in the U.S. to create incentives for more American students to go to American medical schools, graduate, and then have their residencies paid for by U.S. tax dollars rather than money going to foreign medical doctors that are, that are coming here to, to help fill the need. 
Yeah, that's a good point. I wasn't aware of that. And as a, a soon-to-be old guy, these shortages are really concerning to me. So from a selfish perspective, I think we all need to you know, pay attention to this. David, great to catch up and thanks for joining me. Thanks a lot, Todd. I, I love your last comment. You know, we, we talk about in, uh, in medical education, the fact that we're all healthcare consumers. So this is something that touches all of us and something we can all relate to and really appreciate you giving me some time to talk about it today. We hope you enjoyed this episode and that you'll join us again for the next Knowledge Leaders podcast.